Hey there, I'm Helen Ornelas, and I've been a life insurance, long-term care, and Medicare broker for over 20 years, helping thousands of clients during this time. I've come across all types of cases, questions, and calls from people who are in planning or in crisis and provided solutions. So welcome to the On Life Podcast with Helen Ornelas. Listen, you know as well as I do that taking care of important things in life is motivating, empowering, and even inspirational. You're thinking, what does this look like? If you're a business owner, executive, or someone who wants to know, what do I need to know about life events, how to prepare, where can I get help, you're in the right place. These life events will be coming your way, and you will receive these phone calls from your family, siblings, in-laws, grandparents, business partners, and friends. What calls do you think are coming my way? Let's find out. I'll be sharing stories, solutions from me, my clients, providers of service, and others that can help you now or in the future. We have the toolbox here on life, so if you're ready, let's get your toolbox loaded up. All right, here we go. On Life with Helen Ornelas and my uh, wonderful guest, Renee Balcom. This is part two. And so we're going to talk now about some case studies and some really important information that Renee wants to share with everyone. And so, Renee, I'm just going to turn it over to you and talk about one or some of your case studies that you have that you want to share with everybody. Thank you, Helen. And again, thank you so much for having me. I'm always honored to be invited into a podcast and I love your podcast. So especially ones that, you know, are speaking to my peeps. And so I'm really happy to be here today. Specifically, when we talked about cases, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now, for about 20 years. So I've had the privilege of working with a spectrum of clients and their cases and uh, some of their needs. And I don't think I've mentioned, but I have a specialty that's in mental health. So, and behavioral health is kind of an interesting subject because somehow as we age, medicine wants to now take someone that maybe has been schizophrenic and put that into a dementia bucket. And one of the things that I advocate about all the time, and frankly, quite vehemently, is my clients that have had a history of behavioral health issues and, and mental health disease, that they would continue to be treated in that same context as they age, and that we wouldn't suddenly you know, try to shift that treatment plan into something that would be more appropriate for the aging community. So it's definitely something to keep an eye out for. I, a specific client comes to mind as I'm telling you about it, that um, she has been schizophrenic and had mental health disease. She's very productive. She's been very, very successful. And most people probably didn't even realize that she had a mental health problem. As she's aged, now some more complexities have come into that. And so her doctor wanted to shift her on a medication to treat dementia. And all that's done is kind of throw her into a whole different state of mind because they took her off the psych meds that she'd been treated with since she was 15 years old. This particular individual was a very successful litigator. And so what's what's ended up happening is she's 
reverted back to her muscle memory, which all is in all in legal conversation and legal terminology. And so unfortunately, she's constantly threatening to sue people. (laughs) Which is pretty scary when you're dealing with someone that's been a real successful attorney. Um, and what that's ha- what's happened with that is now people don't want to treat her or care for her because they're so afraid of her because, you know, it's still this strong personality. It's still this big person who's very astute in her profession, but we've now thrown this layer of mental health disease on top of it that's untreated mental health disease. So I bring that up because I just... There's a couple of things I want the audience to be sensitive to. Number one is if you have, if you're manic depressive and you've been treated for depression in your life, you're still going to be depressed when you age. It's still going to be a problem. It's not dementia. It's still a mental health. And you don't age out of it. So, and again, and yet medicine, and especially, unfortunately, when you look at Medicare, if you look at their some of the inhibitors, like mental health disease can't be a first diagnosis to have someone to allow someone to live in assisted living. So it has to be a diagnosis because they can't, they can't admit a schizophrenic, someone that's schizophrenic or maybe has behavioral issues. And that's their first diagnosis, they can't be admitted into communal living. So it's problematic. So Medicare will look and automatically the doctors are going to look for a secondary reason for care. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, most people don't realize it. So we try to kind of hide the mental health disease. And oftentimes once we start doing that, we stop treating it. So another example is I have a client that is in assisted living and she started having a lot of behavioral issues. And her family didn't understand it. And so they asked me and they felt like that they were mistreating her in the assisted living um, environment. And the the woman does have some dementia. So I went in and, and what had happened was because her schizophrenia was no longer a primary diagnosis. It was a secondary diagnosis. They changed her psych meds to a really low medication and then shifted her to a dementia medication and so what was coming up was this, the behavioral issues were, was the schizophrenia, right? Because they took her off of the more heavy duty psych medication and put her on kind of an antidepressant. It's like, no, she doesn't need an antidepressant. She needs Seroquel, which is what she's been treated with for many years. Now, the executive director said that they would pass Seroquel, that they would manage Seroquel in their med management program, but she was concerned if it was a primary diagnosis as to whether or not this resident could remain living there. Okay, so you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, if I have a you know mental diagnosis, that the older I get, if I get dementia or some type of, you know, start to lose my mind a little bit, that I potentially cannot get the help I need because I have schizophrenia or some other thing going on that I have to stay in this bucket of just having dementia and my issue that I've had my entire life just gets ignored. There's a possibility for that. Yes. Wow. And and that's where, again, where I think advocacy steps in because, because we have to keep advocating for our loved ones to continue to get the medical treatment that they need 
even in behavioral health. And I personally don't feel, I, I understand why the regulations for assisted living says if someone's primary disorder is a behavioral health disorder, that they're hesitant of them leave, living in community. However, if I have a client that has been, was diagnosed, most schizophrenics are diagnosed somewhere between 13 and 20. Diagnosed, and for 40 years, they've been relatively stable on their meds, right? I think that we're discriminating against them if we say that they can't live in our residence because schizophrenia is their primary diagnosis. And there's this fear that suddenly they're going to lose their mind, right? So, but unfortunately, the regulatory system that the administrators, the RCFEs, have to live by will not accept a resident that mental health is their primary disorder. And so what ends up happening is they start, they shift it into a bucket that's called dementia. They shift, they change the the treatment plan and they start treating dementia at the expense of the mental health treatment. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't. Do you understand what I said? It totally does. And I never would have, have thought about that. I mean, it's, it's obviously discrimination and, you know, you're trying to cure one thing and then you have this other thing that comes up that takes over and it just must be very confusing for everyone involved. And if you're taking care of somebody, it's good to look out for that. I think you were talking about just looking for changes in people in general under care. And that certainly falls in that bucket because I would have never thought that they would change their medication for schizophrenia or any other kind of depression just to satisfy a code so somebody could have housing or be in that facility. Well, I think what's even more shocking is that most people have no idea that mental health disease is discriminated against in communal living. Right. I never knew that till today. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's something that needs to change because more and more, especially through the pandemic, we're starting to see more and more mental health disease. We see it advertised all day long in the media, right? And yet, if you're a certain age, you don't get to have mental health disease anymore. You're demented. Right. That's wrong. It's just wrong. And the the catalyst for that is the regulatory system. And it just, you know, makes me mad. So... Well, thank you for being here and educating the audience here, because a lot of us who have uh, aging parents, spouses, grandparents, family members, you know, we're all working and trying to do our lives and, and taking on these other duties that we have. And, you know, just knowing some of these little pieces to manage that situation better is really, really helpful. Yeah, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. The longer I do it and I recognize how layered it is and how complex it is, it's frankly, in some ways, it's frightening because, again, we're an aging population and we're moving into a time where we're going to start trying to maneuver and navigate through some of these systems, expensive systems, by the way, costly systems, right? But, um 
that just are not already are not serving us well. And as the demand on those systems increase, I believe it's going to get even worse. And so, so again, I speak a lot in a public level because I think there's time, it's time for change. It's time for us to start looking at how we're treating and caring for and uh, assisting our aging population, kind of bring them, come in out of the dark, you know. We're a culture, unfortunately, that wants to pretend like this isn't really happening. But <laughs> well, it is. Uh, thank you for your work in that area and being an advocate and helping to to get the word out. Is there another case or thing that you would like, yeah, people to kind of pay attention to within their family members and friends? There were two today that I specifically wanted to make certain that we just would provide your audience with some education on. And one was the mental health concerns. And the other one is a law that was enacted in 2019 called the right to try law. And what this law says is if you are facing imminent death or, you know, the, well, just basically imminent death, that you have a right to try whatever you or your family feels can be life-sustaining treatment. And I had a case, um, 50-year-old male had, had been diagnosed in November, in fact, the week before Thanksgiving with COVID. He was in a local hospital here. He was went on a ventilator, had spent many, many weeks in isolation away from his family, two young daughters, you know, 10 and 14, just young girls, right? And dad wasn't getting any better. It got so severe that they even gave him a trach because of his breathing. His wife heard about me and called me and they really wanted to try ivermectin. Now, I'm not clinical. I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a medical provider. But what I do know is hopefully a little bit about the regulatory system. And when she was talking to me, I brought up the right to try law. Well, she wasn't familiar with that law. And so we went through it and I walked her through it and she reviewed it and actually took, and and she had already approached the hospital that her husband was in. So there were a couple of things. I got to back up a little bit. There are a couple of things I said, well, first of all, get him out of isolation. He couldn't possibly still be COVID positive. Couldn't. He's been isolated for too long. So get him off the COVID ward, get him out of isolation so your girls can see their dad, right? And let's just try to get life back into him. So the number one. Number two, the doctor had said, you know, ivermectin was outside of their protocols and that he would not introduce it to her husband. And I said, well, the doctor doesn't have a choice if they've already determined that his death is imminent, then you have a right to try. And they have to be responsive to that. And it's a federal, there's only three states in the nation that haven't adopted the right to try law. And California is not one of them. So California's already adopted the law. So she, you know, went back into the hospital armed with her information and they did move him. And they heard girls were able to see their dad and they did introduce ivermectin. Unfortunately, the last time I talked to her, he's still alive, but he wasn't, hasn't responded as well as we had hoped to the ivermectin, but he's no longer vented. He is breathing on his own, but he's not. And, and there's, a, there's a possibility for him to come out of it, but it's definitely a process. So 
but at least he's not vented anymore. At least they get to see him. And what could be his last days are at least with his family or the ivermectin will, you know, take hold or be effective and he'll pull out of it. Yeah. I never really thought about, you know, there's a point where you're not infected anymore. So why should you stay isolated? And it's tough on the patient, but, you know, more tough on the family. Uh, I know when my COVID was high last year, I didn't get to see my mom for almost two years. And it was it was really heart wrenching. So, yeah. Wow. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, I feel like we have, again, kudos to science. We've done everything we can to to try to isolate the disease. But the fact is, we're humans, right? And so we can't remove the human element. And we can't let science remove the human element, right? You know, it was heartbreaking to me that this family was approaching the Christmas holidays. And, you know, dad had been sick for many weeks. They didn't even know if he was going to survive. And his daughters had no way to have even a moment of time with him. Listen, early in the pandemic, I early, early in the pandemic, I had a client that uh, similar situation. He went into the hospital and he did pass. And, you know, the family hired me to get his body and recover his body because their religion wouldn't allow for cremation. And there was no way. There was no way. The system at that time, law on the books in the state of California from the Spanish flu, by the way, said if there's a pandemic, all of those bodies are destroyed. And so the the health department laughed when I called them about getting that body. And I went, I raised, you know, religious exemption and they just start, they literally, they laughed at me. <laughs> I mean, it's not a laughable event, but it's just so absurd, you yeah. know? Yeah. There's no way in God's green earth, you're going to get this man. So stop trying. And I, it was heartbreaking because the family were out of Boston and, you know, he died suddenly and no one expected it. And that was that. They never, we were never able to recover his body. So, you know, again, human beings, we're talking about human beings. We're talking about families. And, and I think it's important that we equip ourselves with either what is the current law and make certain we're armed with that or changing the laws like the mental health problems, right? Changing those laws so that human beings continue to be treated as human beings. So, and the families are respected as human beings. So what can the common person or family have as a discussion or preparation for moving into this chapter of your life? So, I mean, you might come in and there's no will or trust or health directive. And, you know, sometimes you're starting no power of attorney. You're just starting from scratch. So I'm sure a lot of things you're going to talk about, everyone talks about, but since we have an audience here, What type of things do you, number one, the conversations, especially maybe married people should have or someone who doesn't have anyone in their life and, um, and what should they do to prepare so that when somebody does step in or helps, comes in to help make it easier? That's a great question. And, uh, (laughs) again, I always revert back to kind of statistics, right? So the funeral home business, which we're, you know, I mean, we all know people that live and die, right? Lost Aunt Betty, and we've all done that, right? But do you know that 90% of every family that walks into a funeral home, there were no pre-planned? Oh, I believe it because I'm I'm in the life insurance business, so I totally get it. 
nine out of 10 were not pre-planned. We know death is imminent. We know at a certain age, right? And again, we should all make these steps, but it's just one of those things we just never got to, right? And so Aunt Betty died at 96, but she never planned on dying, so she never went in to make her arrangements, right? And that's nine out of 10 Aunt Bettys. That it's just, to me, that's such a huge number. It just floors me, right? So the other thing that's interesting is there's a document called a POLST, P-O-L-S-T, which is Physicians Ordered a Life-Sustaining Treatment Plan. And I'm always amazed. It's a pink, hot pink document that should be hanging on your refrigerator. Number one, I'm almost always amazed at how few people actually have a post and how few doctors actually promote to their patients to do a post. So, so the post is actually a document. It's really easy. Where There's, do you get this? You get it from your, in your doctor's office. You can oh, okay. Get it online, but you really want the kind of the hot pink one. Okay. And it basically will ask you about resuscitation and what you want, how you want to be resuscitated or not, right? And it even gives you, and it's not as cut and dry as that, like resuscitate me or no. It gives you options for like, I want full resuscitation for X period of time. So I want a feeding tube and I want artificial uh, life-sustaining treatment for 10 days, right? depending on whatever your wishes are. Um, It's amazing how few people actually ever do this document. And when I go in with a client, so all of my clients are required to have a Pulse document. When I go in and they're signed by the doctor, it's worked through, you know, and the doctor's chosen to sign that because he's, you know, should be your trusted medical professional, right? But I'm always amazed at how many times I go in with a client with the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we can do that. And it's like, I'm just blown away that they don't do it. <laughs> I'm also blown away that how many people go in for just a minor procedure into the hospital and they don't have what's called an advanced healthcare directive. And the advanced healthcare directive is really for the family and how to make your wishes known if you die. Or if you are in a situation where you're unable to cognitively to make decisions for yourself anymore. And so, and how few of us actually have these documents and yet they require documents for the medical profession to know what to do with us, right? How to handle us and how to move forward with us. So for both the POLST, P-O-L-S-T, Physicians Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment and the Advanced Healthcare Directive should be done. And you can, both of them, you can get in a template format right off of Google, or you can, you know, I've seen advanced healthcare directives. They look like, you know, someone's uh, memoir, right? They have this long, drawn out, you know, directives for their family. It can be as short or as long as you want it to be, but, but both should be documented. Yeah. You know, uh, that's a really good thing to have because when my mom had this major event last February, slip, broke her hip, her femur, her pelvis, coded out five times during surgery. You know, she's recovered amazingly, but we had a lot of conversations, my sister and I, like, what are we going to do? Because there were moments over this last year where she may have may not have made it. And, you know, my sister 
very much involved emotionally with my mom. I'm like maybe one step removed, but we always referred back to that document as a place to have the conversation and talk about what we should do and what the wishes are. And so it was very helpful to have an idea of when my mom was healthy and not in this place, what she wanted. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. And, and you know, what's funny, even back to, you know, making the funeral arrangements, right? Pre-arranging. So my mom, I've been close with my mom my whole life. My, obviously my mom lives with me. She's elderly now. And, and one would assume that I knew and I had a grasp of what she wanted in her final wishes. But I got to tell you, Helen, I went with her. We went to, and we'd had this talk, which is an easy talk, but once you have it, you've had it, right? We went and we and we made arrangements. We went to the funeral home. I've never been, I've never done this before, right? Now I'm doing it with my mom. <laughs> and so I don't want to pretend there was a heightened level of emotion for me because it's my mom. So we go in, but these people are professional. They know what they're doing. It's set up nicely. It's all, it's all done really nicely, right? And they directed her and helped her make decisions that, and she made choices that I would never have thought she wanted made. I was, I was really, I would have been doing so many things incorrectly, right? And I would have been thinking that I'm doing it. Well, this is what mom would want, but only to discover, no, that's not what she wants at all. And that's what the healthcare directive, the pre-planning, you know, funeral arrangements, all of that ensures that we get what we want. Now, our age group, you know, we've been a little bit spoiled, right? So we're used to getting what we want. <laughs> we're hesitant to take these steps and make certain that our final wishes are known is beyond me. I think because we have convinced ourselves we're going to live forever and it just doesn't apply. I know. Uh, My dad died many, many years ago, but he died unexpectedly and there was nothing. And so my sisters and I were just at a loss at what to do because we never had the conversation. There was no instructions and and so my grandmother was just distraught and, and just couldn't even deal with it. And it was a very tough place to be when you just don't know what to do to, you know, take care of your loved one after something like that happens. Well, and let's look at that. So you were talking about how with your mom, you referred back to that. Yes. Document, right. Wasn't there a piece for you in knowing we're doing it mom's way where, rather than the, the what you experienced with your dad where you just didn't know, right? Yeah. So I'm pretty pragmatic. So for me, I mean, it's easier for me, but my sister is very much more empathetic and emotional. And so it really helped to keep her grounded during our conversation because she'd start getting into like, you know, I don't know, it would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would just gently say, hey, you know what? You have that document right in front of you. Why don't you just take a look at it real quick and, and let's kind of navigate it from there. And a couple of days later, she thanked me because it really helped just kind of ease the anxiety of having to make some of these decisions sometimes. And I think that's a really, really good point because, you know, we know history has shown that one of the biggest divisions among siblings is the loss of a parent, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, that creates so much division and just trying to settle their estate and what's, and you know, and what's next. And I think to have guiding documents, whether we agree with them or not, to at least have them into, like you said, have it at a base level to be able to, you know, have some idea about what their wishes are. 
has to be so much more settling than because there's there's always going to be the pragmatic sibling and the romantic. (laughs) And and listen, that would have been with my mom. Like I would have had this big event, and my mom was like, "No, like I don't. No, I don't want any of that stuff." Who knew? I thought she would have wanted a big to do, right? So, well, same with the health directive. So, for me, at where I am today, I kind of want. I want all the chances to come back, right? And live my life. And my husband is like, man, let me tell you, after this point, you just pull the plug and walk away and please do it. Don't try and and save me because for me, I'm comfortable. I'm good. And and so it's very interesting that we both have these different ways that we want to be taken care of should something like that happen. But we've had that conversation and we have the documents and and you know. There's a little bit of comfort, you know, knowing kind of the baseline of where we're each coming from. Well, and I think, you know, kind of circling back to where we started in this day and age when the sanctity of life is becoming, we're we're hearing and seeing so many people with this virus that are becoming critically ill and passing really young, right? I think now it's even more important than it has, you know, again, we're of a generation that like, we're not going to die. We got another 30 years ahead. Of <laughs> but, but the fact is young people are contracting this virus and they're not surviving. A lot of times they're not surviving it. And so there's no age barrier that says we shouldn't have these documents in order. And I think for the younger people, it becomes even more difficult for them, but it's just a necessity, right? It really is. So, and I need to practice what I preach, I've got to say, but as I'm saying this, I'm thinking I should really sit down with my kids who are adults and make certain they have these documents because I know neither one of them do. Right. (laughs) Nor do I know what they want, right? Nor do I have any idea. And and I'm a big mama bear personality. So, you know, I'm going to be the one saying, no, she would have wanted this and I may be off base. <laughs> so any in closing tidbit or tip that you'd like to have the audience know, maybe one thing uh, quickly is how do people pay for services like yours? Traditionally, you don't have to throw any numbers out, but is there a contract? Is it by the hour? Is it by the job? You know, those types of things. Well, all of our, every healthcare advocate's a little bit different, but for me and my agency, we put together a care plan and we put together a retainer agreement. I usually start my clients, depending on the depth of the care plan, we'll usually start around 10 hours and we start working through those tasks that were itemized in the care plan. And um, so it's prepaid. We, we track and we keep a time clock on everything that we do. And then we pull against the retainer and then the client can either choose to reinstate the retainer, kind of like an attorney, you can either refund the attainer or stop services. So yeah, so, but everybody, everybody's probably managing that differently. I find for me, that's just something that's worked well for my company and my clients. They know what to expect and they know what the cost is kind of upfront without feeling like they're running a bill that has no end. Right. Now, if somebody calls you and just kind of wants to share with you what's going on, they get like, a, a, you know, about an hour of your time just to kind of figure out if it's a good match in the whole deal. 
for sure. Yeah, we do. I do consulting. And, you know, I've had sometimes people will call me and maybe the service needs. In fact, three of these have happened this week isn't something that I do, but I have referral partners that maybe sell insurance or they're fiduciaries that I can referrals to. So yeah, I've, I've made three referrals this week. So with those calls and kind of spend time with people and helping them navigate this whole thing called healthcare, called care. So. Well, Renee, it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, I could do 10 episodes with you. You're most certainly going to be back. I think what you do and your stories and advice is just really what everyone needs to hear right now. And so thank you for your time. We're going to have information on how to contact you again. You're more than welcome to share that right now if you want, but we'll have it posted too. So I'll give you a time right now to do your shout out if you want. Yeah. So you can reach me and in Sacramento at 541-661-2369 or my website is reneecompany.com. Just run that together. R-E-N-E-E, the word company.com. And you can contact me through my website as well. Excellent. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. Thank All right, you. Renee. All right. This is On Life with Helen. Thank you for spending some more time with us. And we look forward to bringing you more in the near future. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of On Life with Helen Ornelas podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share with a friend. And if you haven't already subscribed, rated, and reviewed on your favorite podcast player, please do. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly, helen at ornellosinsurance.com, H-E-L-E-N at O-R-N-E-L-L-A-S insurance.com. In closing, this podcast is dedicated to all who believe in preparing for the future and beyond. Thank you.